Hello and welcome to the Molyneux View, podcast number two. I'm Jackie Oatley and with me your Master Wolves correspondent for The Athletic, Tim Spears. Hi Tim. Jackie, how you doing? About this podcast business, we did one last week and um, we recorded it thinking, well, this is a bit too much fun to actually go out. But they did actually publish it, didn't they? Which is extraordinary. It apparently went down quite well. I, th- I thought it was just, just going to be my dad and a couple of best mates that were going to listen to it. But apparently a few more people did. So... Well, I didn't even expect that many, to be honest, but they did. (laughs) And we had some really nice feedback. And we really, really appreciate the feedback that we get on Twitter, at Tim Spears, at Jackie Oatley. But that is good. I suppose the main concern was that it wasn't quite long enough. We did 30 minutes last week, but I don't think we're going to have that problem this week, are we, given the content that we've got? Oh, my days, no. Well, the good thing is it's not just us talking, because we've got a couple of interviews, which we're going to play very shortly. Uh, I'm very excited about these. Uh, We'll explain in a minute. But the theme this week is Molyneux. The actual stadium, the 130-year-old stadium that is one of the great grounds of the world. We're incredibly biased. We're not pretending any other way, but it has a lot of history to it. But first, before we come on to the stadium, the redevelopment and the history and a load of tweets we've had from people talking about that, let's just reflect a bit on the week that Wolves have had on the pitch. That Liverpool game, Tim. Hmm. Yeah, I'm still I'm still thinking about it now. To be honest, I, I, I'm still waking up in the middle of the night thinking Diego Jota's about to score a 94th minute equaliser, um, oh. but it, it hasn't it hasn't gone in the back of the net yet. So, but even um, before that, I still can't think, stop thinking about when it was one all, and he had that opportunity to slide in Adama Traore to the oh, right. No. It could have been two oh, one. No. Never mind Ooh. an equaliser. But it's not all Diego's fault. Um, <laughs> we should add. Uh, it was just I just I came away feeling quite deflated and disappointed actually um i think there's been a there's a slight change of approach now in that wolves aren't the plucky losers anymore um and really how they haven't got a point off liverpool in the two games we've had in the last month i do not know but rather than being you know so proud at uh, rightly proud at um at pushing this fantastic unbelievable liverpool team all the way in both games i think you've got to say come on but Wolves, Wolves are at this level now, you know, they are a kind of a top six, seven club, whatever you want to call it, um, for the time being. And they really, really should have taken a point last Thursday on the balance of play, on the chances that they had. Um, Matt Doherty, of course, in the first half, Mr. Sitter, you know, the Jota one at the end, Traore's chance, Jimenez had one as well. And it kind of really heightened, as did the Spurs game before Christmas and the Liverpool game at Anfield how it's just those key moments in both boxes that Wolves have got to tighten up and improve on, be it Cody's uh, miss it, missed header um, for the first goal or Wolves not dealing with the throw-in for Liverpool's second goal and then taking those kind of half chances in both boxes as um, Firmino obviously did for Liverpool for for their winner. So it's it's Wolves uh, you know in a fantastic position being uh, being able to compete with these teams but if they want to take it onto that next level and I know we're setting incredibly high standards here but hey you know this is this is where they're at now then th- they really need to improve in both boxes and um, if they can do that then they'll be starting to take points off Liverpool and the like regularly mm, they are very fine margins aren't they I've spoken to a lot yeah. of people at various places of work I've been to in the last few days and everyone talking about that game and so much respect for Wolves and one of one person said at the weekend said it was like a Champions League game that was the quality was a Liverpool fan that said it was like watching Liverpool in the Champions League such was the standard and the quality and that Liverpool fan couldn't believe that they'd come away from that game let alone the two of them um with all six points and well three ab- points absolutely on Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I spoke to James Pierce as well, my, my colleague who reports on Liverpool for the Athletic, and he said basically that's as hard as Liverpool have been pushed all season long. And it, it, it was a fantastic occasion, as you say. The, the watching world um, was tuning in that night with hardly any other games that night. Um, and I spoke to Ryan Giles a couple of days ago, who was on the bench and unused sub for Wolves. A really nice interview, actually. Um, it's on the Athletic. This. Uh, as we speak, kind of talking about his successful loan at Shrewsbury and how, and how he's back in the fold. But yeah, he was there, sat on the bench, um, kind of taking in this unbelievable atmosphere, probably extremely nervous that he might be on the pitch any minute if uh, if called upon by Nuno. But what a great occasion to be part of. The noise was, was frightening at times, it really was. 
what about looking ahead to Manchester United now? Because there are a lot of Wolves fans who are actually quietly confident going into the Liverpool game. But now they've got something of a break. They've had a few days off, haven't they? Or at least a couple, which is pretty unusual for them. And they will be refreshed going into that United game. And all the pressure, of course, is very much on United, on Solskjaer, on Ed Woodward, on the board, on the Glazers. And it's at Old Trafford. Well, Wolves have competed extremely well against Man United since since promotion. Obviously, they beat them in the Cup last year, drew with them in the Cup at Molyneux a few weeks ago before being beaten in the replay. Otherwise, unbeaten against them in the league as well. Very close in the league table. And they'll go there full of confidence and, and looking to take advantage of this yeah, very kind of toxic atmosphere. I mean, for that FA Cup replay a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't believe how quiet it was at Old Trafford. Um I know it wasn't a necessarily very important game to United, um, but it was it was deathly quiet in the first half, and there's a real kind of malaise over that club at the moment. And the Wolves are very much kind of hoping for a bit of a change, changing of the guard, really, as far as the, the traditional, so to speak, big six go. You know, Leicester are gatecrashing that party at the moment, and Wolves hope to do the same. And United are one of the clubs that, that they're kind of looking to catch up, you know, certainly in terms of on the field. And they'll go there, like I said, full of confidence, and crucially, after, what, eight, nine days um, of rest, so um, players have been given a few days off, um, a few of them have gone home, back to Portugal or whatnot, um, and they'll come back refreshed. They can give it all in this game, knowing that, again, they've got two weeks off, this winter break, which will benefit Wolves more than most clubs and teams, I think, given their very heavy schedule um, over the season so far, owing to their Europa League commitments they've pretty much played as much football as anybody and with a smaller squad to boot so like I said they'll go there full of confidence fully expecting to get a result I have to say and and given um, the current form of the two teams I'd predict that Wolves can go there and get something without being disrespectful to Manchester United you think when we were growing up and Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager and they had all these great great players and you look at the situation now how the gap has closed and you think well you wouldn't swap your manager for the Manchester United manager how many of your players would you swap for Manchester United players yeah absolutely and you go back to United's last title win what was it 2012-13 that that kind of time and that's when Wolves were in League One so to go from where the two clubs were to where they are now, where Wolves can legitimately say, that, you know, on their on their day, they can easily take a result off off Man United. Um, and there's, if you put together a composite eleven of the two teams, you, there's a chance for saying you may get more Wolves players at the moment. Certainly on form, you know, rather than reputation, then would the likes of of Pogba get getting in a composite eleven at the moment? I don't know. I'd rather have Neves and Matinho to be honest. So. Yeah, two clubs going in very different directions. Yeah, that'll be absolutely fascinating game. But what's going on at the moment? Because um, this time last week when we were recording, in the hour before we went on air or started recording at least, there was transfer activity, wasn't there? And then again this week, just before we press record, um, you stuck a tweet out saying Wolves have just signed somebody else or about to. I haven't even seen who this is yet. Tell us all about it. Oh, it's never-ending at the moment. I cannot wait till this window's done, I've got to say. Um, so, yeah, um, this is one that's been in the pipeline for about a week or two now. Uh, they've been monitoring this lad, Enzo Lodice, I mean, you might say. Oh, God, that's terrible pronunciation. Doing a black country um, accent, it's much more fun. <laughs> Enzo Lodice. Um, that's more like from, it, mate. Come from on. Dage. He's from Dage, <laughs> unlock like the mustard. Um, <laughs> he sounds Boston-like. <laughs> anyway, he's um, uh, a France under-20 international midfielder um, who they're bringing in on loan with a view to buy, as they love to do. Um, he'll be going into the under-23s, um, but he's he's played 20-so um, or, to, or so times in the um, French top flight. So, high, really good reputation, um, and he's having a medical today, as in Tuesday. So, they'll be looking to bring him in. As and in Monday, as for first. As in, as in, if you're listening on Tuesday, it'll be he should be having his medical, <laughs> as uh, as we, as we speak. Um, but yeah, as far as um, first team additions go, as you say, a week ago was when this news was all kind of breaking on Monday afternoon. Still, no one over the line just yet. However, I'm told it shouldn't, fingers crossed, be too long before Daniel Pedent certainly arrives from Olympiacos. Um, feel being the early twenty millions, and. Um, there was a lot of confusion and panic last night amongst the Wolves Twitterati when they saw a report from Greece 
saying that the deal was off. Um, I'm told that's not the case, and it's more contractual issues um, with the player that need resolving. Um, but he, yeah, he didn't play against AK Athens yesterday. Left out the squad, and it shouldn't be too long before hopefully that deal is done. But obviously Wolves would rather not leave it until Friday night, as we would also hope um, when the deadline passes at 11 o'clock. Um, and also Nelson Oliveira as well. Again, another Portuguese player from Greece that they're looking to sign um, as soon as they can agree a deal, uh, a fee between the, with with AK Athens. Then that should that should get over the line as well. And I think they'll be happy with their month's work if they get those two players. Plus, they've, they've brought in two or three um, for the under 23s as well. So, despite um, a lot of worry amongst the fans about um, how many players they're going to bring in, if they're bringing in five. Um, two for the first team and three uh, for the under-23s, um, then I think that will represent a good month's work. You explained there about how they're bringing in our friend Enzal for um, a loan initially with a view to a permanent move. Just explain how that works and why they do it that way, structuring it financially with a loan first. Um, I mean, a lot of it's to um, for their benefit, so to see if, if the player is... As hoped, I mean, someone like Jesus Vallejo, who you know came in and didn't really impress, and obviously then the Wolves, the ball is in Wolves's court then, as if they want to take up that option to sign him. Sometimes though, um, instead of an option, it can be an obligation, which is quite a new thing, I think. So when they had Dendonka on loan for the season, they had an obligation to buy him at the end of that loan. That's done, as far as I'm aware purely for financial reasons in terms of accounting. So that's spreading the cost of deals over financial years. Um, so to balance the books, obviously you've got to be very careful with financial fair play rules these days. Um, and that's why also they'll spread the cost of deals over several years. Um, so for example, the held Costa is off to Leeds at the end of this season. Again, that's an obligation to buy for Leeds and that'll be done um, as per information from my athletic colleague Phil Hay who, co- who covers Leeds that's going to be four million a year that Leeds will pay over f- over a four year period it's a total 16 million it just makes financial sense to do that like I said to, to balance the books and spread the cost um, so that you've got a bigger transfer budget each year and, and more money to play with Is that what happened with Cavalero to Fulham as well? Yes I believe so yeah Um it, it, so it, it just it's a clever deal to do. The loans to buy has been incredibly successful for Wolves over the past few years. We've seen it with a host of them: Bolly, Jota, Johnny, as well. Um, like I said, it just it just kind of gives more, more power to their elbow, really, for to complete these deals. And if a player doesn't settle in England for for whatever reason, then they can turn down that deal. Alfred and Alfred and Jai was one um, who they could have signed but chose not to when they when they were promoted to the Premier League at that time. So each deal can vary, but but you you can't argue with Wolves' record in the in the past few years. Absolutely. What about Raúl Jiménez? Was that slightly different? That was. Um, I think the fee was initially agreed um, when the loan first came in, um, but that deal wasn't as much set in stone as some of the others. Um, Obviously, he'd, he'd done okay for Benfica, but hadn't really set the world on fire as he'd, as he'd been a substitute for most of his time there. So, But uh, yeah, a, a fee a fee had been agreed. And also, you can get deals where it's the amount of games that a player has, has played, and if he, if he passes that line, then he'll come in, which is what's happened with Catroni. So I've heard people say that Catroni is an obligation to buy for Fiorentina. That's not the case. But if he plays a certain amount of games this season then that deal will automatically go through. And I'm told it's not, it's not a large amount of games. It's probably a similar amount of games that he played uh, for Wolves in the first half of this season. So um, that will go through at some point later this season. I know he started quite well with Fiorentina, so you'd imagine he's going to stay in the team and then that deal will be triggered probably before the end of May. By the way, on the Raul Jimenez front, I just recorded the Athletic Transfer Daily podcast, which will be out uh, will be out now by the time you're listening to this. Um, and we had the Manchester United correspondent Laurie Whitwell on. He said that United did look at Raul Jimenez, but they decided he was just too expensive for them. So they have looked elsewhere, and all Wolves fans will be quite happy with that. Yeah, especially with his age, you know, 28, 29. 29 um, in May, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think Wolves are in a good position on that front. If they really wanted to sell, then it would sort of be in the next year or so that they'd want to do that if they want to get a massive fee for a player who's approaching 30. 
but they've paid 32 million and you've got to say his values values increased massively over the past year for, for where he is right now but it will start to decline quite quickly as, as as he gets older as we've seen in the past yeah we had a tweet in from um, one of our well i say regular listeners <laughs> he listened last week and i think he's going to listen to this one as well uh, simon hill based in switzerland um, aka swiss old gold now he asks whether you, Tim, sense that Foson are suddenly more cautious about investing in the UK given their exposure to Thomas Cook, transfer targets have been modest and the Molyneux redevelopment plans appear to be scaled back. Is that a concern? He follows it up by asking, if that is an issue, will Nuno hang around? Um, I mean, if you look at how much money they spent last summer, approaching £100 million, going on the back of spending... A rough, roughly the same amount as season before, so that's two hundred million. Plus this month, um, maybe thirty if they get any Pedence and Oliveira would be about thirty million pounds. I mean, I'd call that pretty lavish spending, really. Um, and as for Molyneux, yes, I know we'll, we'll get into that shortly, but I don't sense that they're cutting back on on spending. You know, they're looking at building their own under twenty three venue. They're looking at redeveloping Molyneux just just in different ways, and. When he says about transfer targets, I would say that the climate in January is the biggest factor in that. You don't see, you don't see many huge deals done in January. I, th- I, th- I think the summer will be the litmus test for what for what he's saying there. But for all the noises I, I'm, I'm hearing, Foson are, are more committed than ever, really, to Wolves. And in fact, more so. You know, they've, they've become more important to Foson as the years have gone on. Um, in terms of their their global portfolio of businesses, and. As, as for the kind of political situation in China, that's very hard for someone like me to read, really. You kind of need Chinese financial experts to give their opinion on that one. But Are you not one? As, <laughs> not yet. But as far as, as as far as Wolves go, I've not noticed any slowing down in spending, and I don't anticipate one either. Great. Now, we'll come on to the Molyneux redevelopment in a moment. But first, the Athletic Podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, your budget, your size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands including established names and up-and-coming designers try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe you can then pay for what you love and send back the rest for your stylist time you pay a charge of 10 pounds which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy remember you try before you buy at home delivery and returns are free both ways and you don't need a subscription to sign up stitch fix allows you to save time because they do the shopping for you and you'll enjoy top styling tips from their experts. So get started with Stitch Fix today. Support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That is S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X.co.uk forward slash athletic. Now, Tim, on to the mighty the golden palace, as Wolves fans like to call it, or what is it, the custard bowl that... Albion fans like to call it. Oh, don't don't give them time Rude, of day. Come on, Jackie. No, we'll mention, don't mention that. Um, no, you did an article last week on the redevelopment. This is all about Wolves going forwards into the future and where they go from here. Just to recap, if people aren't aware, as to the slight change in plan from the original idea as to what was going to happen to the redevelopment. I mean, this situation seems seems to change every every year. Really, this has been a live issue for what fifteen years now. Really, um, maybe since Steve Morgan came into the club and and, look, and looked to redevelop Molyneux. Of course, he did the North Bank, and then Steve Morgan's kind of vision and master plan for Molyneux was on hold. You know, the double relegation and whatnot. And then a year or two ago, you know, we hear that that Foson are then putting together their own master plan to redevelop Molyneux. And as recently as the end of last season, really, they were still talking about that plan. And, and we saw these amazing visions that people may remember um, of artists' impressions of how Molyneux may look years down the line, which which were released at the end of season awards last May. I'm sure you remember, Jackie, um, spec- looking spectacular, you know, years down the line, 50,000, 60,000 stadium. From what I gather, if people who've read the story last week or if you haven't, you know, it's on The Athletic. Um, it's fair to say there's been a bit of a change of approach recently. Um, in terms of how they're looking to 
maximize the benefits of Molyneux, I would say. So in, in simplistic terms, they could knock down the steeple stands now and double the South Bank in size. It would take a long time to do that, particularly the Steve Bull. You know, we're talking a two-year project. But more importantly, it would take a huge amount of money and investment to do that. And I think that Fosun's kind of change of approach centres around the fact that if they were to spend an awful lot of money on doing that, and all that comes with it, which is new hotels, new restaurants, new bars, redoing the subway, um, redoing huge huge areas around Molyneux in terms of access. That would cost so much money that it would take so long to see a return on that investment. And as we know, you've got to think a bit differently when it comes to Fosun. They're an investment firm and they want to see a return on their investment. So in their eyes, not not speaking on their behalf by any means here, but I would imagine that in their eyes, spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds on redoing Molyneux perfectly would take a long time and you'd be talking decades to start to see some money back. Now, are Fosun going to be here in decades' time? We don't know. Um, but I think that their change of approach now is to look for short-term improvements to Molyneux, some of which can be done very quickly and fairly cheaply, and then see a return on that investment um, quite quickly. For example, the very dated Steve Ball stand. Um, mm. I sat in there for, for many years as a season ticket holder, and it's hard to believe that this is a stand that's been there since 1979. Um, we're going back a long way and it's, it's hor- you've got to say it's horribly dated in mm. some areas I mean I've sat in an executive box there once for a match back in League One I think it was against Shrewsbury and if you ever sat in one of those boxes it, it kind of sounds like you're underwater um, because you can't you can't hear um, you can't hear the, the what's happening in the stadium at all because it's completely shut off in that box yeah we've all rather been underwater than than wanted to see what's going on at Molyneux <laughs> half our lives, haven't we? Maybe not now, but a year's gone by. Take yeah, it. absolutely. And then if, if the sun shines, you, you can't see the pitch that well because of the reflection, and you've got the away fans um, sat right in front of you. Um, the rest of Steeble Stand, it's just not fit for purpose anymore. The concourses are tiny. It takes half an hour to get in because they haven't got enough turnstiles. So what they're looking at is short-term improvements, be that kind of like reprofiling the stadium. So obviously they'd love to bring it closer to the pitch, um, they'd love to be able to put some away fans in the corner of that a corner of that stand and use and put the rest of the away fans in the quadrant so that they're parked away in the corner. Um, they'd love to, um, I'm sure, improve the executive facilities on offer there because they're not going to make much money out of that at all. So and, and add more turnstiles as well. So there's lots of work. There's lots of ways, more than ten ways that they're looking at of improving the stadium in the short term. That will also include. Um, a new temporary corner stand in between the Steve Bull and South Bank stands, uh, which they're hoping to do this summer. Um, I'm sure that they'll be looking at maybe doing the opposite corner to that as well some, at some point down the line. Um, so they'd have to get rid of the big screen to do this work they want to do this summer. Um, and then there's all, sort of op- all sorts of options where they could put a big screen on the North Bank, for example, like they were, like they were intended to do back in 2011. So... As far as the long-term future, from what I'm hearing from the club and the council, the, it is still going to go ahead, this major redevelopment. But until that button is pressed, you can't say for definite that it's definitely going to go ahead, can you? Because we've seen far too many stadium redevelopments at Molyneux that haven't gone ahead um, in the future to kind, of, to kind of say it's definitely a done deal. But what I'd say is a positive is that the priority in terms of spending is on the first team. You know, we've seen mistakes here with that in the past. Um, but if the club are concerned about having the Steve Bull out of action for two years because of the capacity drop, you know that's one of the issues they've got. If they if they knock down the Steve Bull stand now, where do all those fans go? Um, and they've got a ten thousand seat waiting list. But if they don't do it now, then you know when do they do it? When is a good time to take a capacity hit while while you redo your stadium? So there's lots of questions that need answering. I mean, there's an unbelievable amount of work going on behind the scenes here, you've got to say. There's architects at Molyneux, there's business proposals being put together. It's a very complicated process. Behind the Steve Ball stand, there's lots of university land. Behind the South Bank, you know, that you've got the car park there with ownership issues. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure, Jackie, I mean, fans won't want to hear it, but I'm sure a purpose-built stadium elsewhere would be so much easier for Fosun to do, so much easier to go and build somewhere on the I-54 it would be cheaper and quicker to do. You could you could bring your own hotels, restaurants, bars, conferencing facilities. It'd be so much easier to do it. Things in terms of 
of traffic. I mean, Molyneux is bad enough for traffic now, you know, let alone adding another 20,000 fans there every week. So, But the emotional pull of Molyneux and the, the, the strength of feeling about keeping the club stadium in the city, at the heart of the city, you know, the city and the club are so, in, are so well in, entwined that I don't see them moving personally, even though it kind of goes against Fosun's principles of investing smartly and investing wisely. Um, so we'll see what they do. As I say, for now, as I'm told, um, the stadium redevelopment will happen, but there's going to be um, lots of little things done to improve the stadium in the meantime. It is a very difficult one, isn't it? Because, I mean, we all have such an emotional pull towards Molyneux. We can all see the benefits of staying there for the benefit of the city, for the fans being close to the station, There is, you know, the, the history, the memories... But then I guess on the other side of it, you could also look at it if you're trying to be a little bit dispassionate and maybe looking towards the future, as you mentioned, the benefits of being away and not having the issue of having to cut down capacity for a few years, what have you, and building the hotels and entertainment complex and everything that goes with it. Wouldn't other clubs have had those kind of dilemmas over the years? So many of those grounds that I used to go to, the baseball ground, Burnden Park, all these different grounds are no more their housing estates or Filbert Street, new ground in Leicester built next door. They all had to go through this, um, the ones that moved away, and presumably they've come out the other side better for it, no? Yeah, Le- Leicester's a good example, and I would say Arsenal as well. I, I really like the way that Arsenal have, have done their stadium. It's probably my personal favourite in terms of new stadiums. Oh, there's no know, atmosphere though, is it? I mean, I know no library's library, but... Oh. I completely agree. What, what I like about it is like the walkways that surround it and there's there's lots of nods to the club's history. Um, you've got these um, mosaics and pictures of former players, you know, adorning these walkways around the Emirates. It's, it's still got a tight-knit residential area surrounding it, so it doesn't feel like it's in the middle of nowhere. You've got your statues and very impressive arena, but as you say, it'll never be Highbury. And in terms of soul and atmosphere... Um, it'll just never be the same um, but they're making an awful lot of money out of it and that's an important point as well in that the clubs that Wolves are competing with and trying to surpass like Newcastle, West Ham and probably Leicester as well are making a lot more money every match day than Wolves certainly in terms of corporate offering Wolves are way behind elsewhere so they've got to do something about that um, and it is it's a really interesting dilemma you're right um, from, from Foson's point of view they would probably like to just be building a stadium now, somewhere, somewhere by the by the I fifty four near the motorway. Like I said, you can you can specify it to your every need, and do, uh, it would be a lot cheaper than the redeveloping money. But probably hard for them to get their head around. Really, that um, fans are so opposed to to leaving. You know, they would kind of turn around and say, "Well, how look, much we research have they done? This, though, um, how much research have they actually done in talking to the fans and actually working?" out would there be a massive backlash if they were to propose moving a genuinely propose moving in terms of research that's a good question i don't know but what i, I remember jeff she floated publicly the idea of leaving molyneux um about a year or year or so ago he did an interview with um an overseas newspaper i think it was I think it was a business got, magazine wasn't it i think you might be right and that got a very negative reaction and when i was, I was at the express and star at the time and we did a couple of stories and the reaction was universally no. You know, we don't want to go. I, I, I think fans would probably stomach um, Molyneux being renamed as long as Molyneux was incorporated into the name somehow as, as some kind of stadium rights deal, I think, a push. But as far as leaving Molyneux, nobody's really got their head around that yet. And it, and it is so closely linked to the city. You know, you walk around on a match day in the pubs and the shops and it, it's it's... It's that feel that you can't replicate elsewhere and you know Molyneux only a little five-minute walk away and I used to, you'll laugh, Jackie, but I, I, at the end of a night out, I, I sometimes I just used to wander down to Molyneux on my own and just kind of have a little walk around and see the statues and have a little drunken chat with Billy Wright and whatever, <laughs> um, take a few pictures and it's got it's got such a lovely feel to it and um, oh. right in the heart of the city and it, it, you've got to say, it would rip the heart out of Wolverhampton if they were to move elsewhere, so... It's a really interesting dilemma. Oh, I don't know what you mean that I laugh. Oh my god, I used to go down there every lunchtime when I was in the sixth form at the Did grammar you? school. Yeah, I used to used to head up there up to Molyneux and just used to hang out and stare at the place. And I remember once oh, this is really sad. Um, I remember once I can't remember how old I was, but the old before it was redeveloped, before I was at the grammar, and um, 
it was the old Waterloo Road stand. And I remember just being outside and just soaking it up. I remember being invited inside and Gary Bellamy was there. Do you remember the defender oh, with yeah. the tash? Yeah. <laughs> I remember Gary Bellamy signing something for me. I think my autograph book that I got from the uh, the old porter cabin uh, in the car park where they used to train on a Friday under Graham Turner. And um, had loads of potholes in it. And I uh, went in there and I remember Bully was sitting there. It was the first time I met Bully. And I think I was just so starstruck. I don't think I could even speak. And I just got him to sign something and I just looked at him and then walked out again. It was a very nice man that had taken me in, um, another Graham, somebody or other. And uh, yeah, oh God, so many very sad memories. Maybe we'll come on to a few a few more memories of Molly and you a little bit later on. But I saw a tweet just before we started recording from Tony Layton, a longtime journalist, now retired, huge Wolves fan. He says, I see that Wolverhampton Council have no objection to Wolves' new stadium plans. Hope the plans become reality, unlike this 1958 plan for a new Molyneux with the emoji, hmm, yeah, as if. And, and it did look beautiful. And we saw the one at the end of Season Awards um, last May, didn't we? It looks absolutely stunning. And every time I look at it, I think, wow, this could be something so special. But there is so much work to be done before they can actually make that reality in terms of buying up land across the road, etc. Isn't there sort of a lot politically that needs to be done to to realise that dream of of that full capacity that they want, a huge capacity they need to be able to kick on? Yeah, definitely. There's lots of there's lots of um players involved in this, university and the council being the main two and you've got Asda in the way as well. And like I said earlier, getting around Molyneux on a match day is not easy and the and the roads are always chock a block and they've got this new thing now where they shut off Waterloo Road and a couple of other bits an hour and a half before kickoff, and they haven't got enough car parks. And like I said, you you had fifteen twenty thousand people on on top of that. It's just it's just not it just can't happen. It's a logistical nightmare. So they need they need the council on board, and they've had problems with the council historically going back many many years in the past in terms of how to redevelop Molyneux and surrounding areas. So they've they've got to have them on board, but they've got ten thousand fans waiting to get in here on a, on a waiting list. Um, and there'll be many more to come if they continue this um, this phenomenal rise, you know, up the table and in Europe, etc. So how do you cater for those 10,000 fans who are willing to spend £450 a year on their season ticket alone? You know, so so they'll want to get these fans in as soon as, as, soon as possible and make Molyneux far more profitable than it is because it... it it should be a huge cash cow to Foson, but it isn't at the moment. So they're trying to get their heads around that as well. It's it's a it's a very very complicated process. Is communication good enough? I mean, I've been on Twitter in the last couple of days and seen a couple of tweets from Laurie Dalrymple, the former managing director, now at Harlequins uh, Rugby Union Club, communicating with fans, explaining what's going on, saying what he's trying to do about fan experience, etc. And I have to admit, a little part of me felt pretty sad that we don't get that anymore from him about what's going on at Wolves. And I've seen a tweet suggesting something similar. I'm sorry, I don't have it to hand, but asking about the link between the club and the fans. Do you think more needs to be done? Because Laurie Dalrymple's job has been redistributed between Jeff Shee um, and Russell Jones' marketing um, manager, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I, th- I think that'll come. Um, I think it needs to. As you say, there's a bit of a vacuum there in terms of communication. I know that they've considered um, speaking this month um, when fans are, are flapping around about no transfers and a, and a tiny squad. And I know they've, they've, they've considered speaking, but equally, do you give a running commentary on everything that you do? Especially when things are going so well, you know, do they have to justify everything that they're doing at the moment, you know, when they've got such a good focus, and I'm talking about here, have got such a good record of what they've done in the club in the past two years. However, yes, they, they do need to rectify that, be it, be it Jeff Shee speaking more perhaps, or as you say there, Russell Jones is now taking a far more prominent role. Um, previously, you know, marketing manager, but he's now working with on things, including the stadium, and, it, and it's, it's he that will report to Jeff Shee in the coming weeks and months, and it'll Jeff Shee that will make this decision on the stadium. So they've got the fans' parliament, but I've got to say that those meetings have, have become far more sporadic over the past year or so. Um, and Laurie Dalrymple was, you know, a, a big loss to this club. You know, the reasons behind his departure have never really come out properly, and it's um, it was a, it was it was an alarming and or surprising departure when he left the club, and it's not really one that's been filled yet publicly. 
um, behind the scenes, you know, everything is still getting done as they want it to. But certainly publicly, I think the fans maybe need a little bit more assurance. You know, Nuno's not a natural one um, to come out and make uh, <laughs> statements and appease the fans on certain things because he doesn't want information coming out at all and he won't volunteer anything that he doesn't have to. That's his choice. But in absence of him and, and, and Laurie Dorimpel and... They do need other people to step up. I think you're right, Jackie. But also, I think they know that. They keep an eye on everything, all communications, certainly online. They're they're all over it, and they know what their perceptions of of they know what people's perceptions of the club is. Absolutely, uh, just because they're not saying it doesn't mean they they don't see it. They read message boards. Um, absolutely, um, and Twitter. Absolutely, I, I, I never go to them with any kind of query or opinion that they aren't aware of. So in terms of communication, I, I think it's something that they'll look at after the January transfer window and, and come to some kind of um, agreement moving forward. I mean, you know, this, they, they manage to speak in, in the programme, don't they, every week? You've got Kevin Thelwell, Jeff Shee and Nuno all with columns in there. So maybe it's a case of um, transferring that form of communication to somewhere else because there is just a bit of a vacuum at the moment. Love your understatement there that Nuno doesn't particularly like speaking to the media because obviously I talk to a lot of other journalists about Wolves quite a lot and they all say to me, Nuno hates the media, doesn't he? Or he's, or you know, is he not a very nice bloke? And I'm like, oh no, 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 he's a really nice bloke and he's very polite. All, all dealings I've ever had to do with him, super, super polite and any press conferences, just doesn't want to say anything. It's just not his thing, is it? He just doesn't want to give anything away. He, Tough yeah. game, tough opponents. That's it, no, and it's hard for journalists. I, I don't, I don't think he sees. I don't think he really sees the benefit of it, to be honest. And the fact that he's been a winning manager ever since he's been at Wolves probably contributes to that, because you know what it's like when a manager's in trouble, or a club's not doing very well. You know, they need the press on side to sort of explain and justify the decisions that they're making. But Nuno's never really had that because he's 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 a god to these supporters. You know, you walk around town and you see his face or caricature plastered and graffitied on walls he's absolutely adored so he's never really needed to justify what he's doing to the fans and I think that that kind of comes into it plus the fact that he's a bit grumpy and plus the fact that he's um, not a kind of a natural extrovert either I'd say so combine all those three and it makes for um, not the most enjoyable of press conferences. Yeah, exactly. But when things or if things weren't going so well, then of course fans would want to know a little bit. On that, into your interviews that you have very kindly gone down to Molyneux, especially to get today. And I'm so excited about these. And um, in a moment, we'll hear from a club legend in Graham Hughes, who a lot of fans will already know about. We'll come on to him in a moment. But first of all, you spoke to Pat Quirk, official club historian and museum curator. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Fans might have seen um, Pat being interviewed on TV now and again or seen him in and around the stadium. He does all the stadium tours. Um, he'll oversee the museum. Basically, he knows everything about Wolves. So really wanted to speak to him about Molyneux and its origins um, and find out as much about what he knows. He's an encyclopedia as possible. Well, Wolves, um, it's their fourth ground and they came here really in a, a quite a scurrilous way. Um, can not tell you about that? Yes, please. Well, at the time, Wolves um, had a... On the third ground, it's... Um, upon the Dudley Road, which is now Wonders Avenue. Um, they'd been in the cup final of 1889 and lost to Preston North End. Um, the local press said that Preston had cheated by employing foreign players, and by that they meant Scotsmen. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, they had a post-mortem afterwards, and a fellow called Toke, T-O-K-E, I think, he was from the Football Association, and... Um, he said to the Wolves directors, if you move close to the centre of your town, we were about four miles away from the centre of Wolverhampton then, so if you move close to the centre of your town, you'll get much bigger gates. They're only getting gates about 3,000. And uh, the chairman of the time lived on... Uh, um, he lived on Waterloo Road, and he was aware that this ground was coming up for rent. And so he did a deal behind the chairman's... Uh, behind the president's back, a fellow called Hickman, and behind the... Um, uh, Eli Johnson, the uh, treasurer, is back, and he moved Wolves here for ten pound a year, and we've been here ever since. <laughs> but it, it it worked. I mean, the gates went up from 
and about 3,000 to 15,000 overnight, so it was well worth it. So your first game here was in? <laughs> My first, what they used to do was, um, when I was going back to the dark ages when I was at school, um, what the club did was they had reserve fixtures here, alternate weeks, so if we were playing away, say at Southampton, um, first team, the reserve team would come up here and play us on that same Saturday. And so the reserve fixtures, it was, they always called them the stiffs, watching the stiffs. Um, so I, I, uh, the club used to send tickets to these reserve matches to schools, and schools used them as incentives. So I had, um, I managed to get one of those to do some really nice writing for Sister Mary Austin. <laughs> and um, I came with my brother, and uh, I was about eight or nine years of age, and we stood in the family enclosure, what is now the family enclosure here. And um, I remember, uh, you know, we had all the warnings from my parents about behaviour and stuff, and which is right and proper. But when I came, uh, me and my brother, little innocence, we stood there ready for the match to start. And there was a guy stood by us who had obviously been in a pub since 10 o'clock that morning. And he was roaring drunk. And it was, um, and Eddie Clamp was playing, <laughs> the famous Eddie Clamp, the famous Hardman, or infamous Hardman. Anyway, this bloke decides that he's going to abuse Clamp every, every time he could. So um, every time Clamp went past us on the pitch, this fellow would shout, yeah, rubbish Clamp, call yourself a footballer, you know, all this sort of thing. Anyway, the ball goes down the far end of the pitch on the walls attack, and Clamp, Clamp jumps off the pitch and comes up this fellow and smacks him in the face. <laughs> he falls in a big, big heap on the floor. And Clamp gets back on the pitch and carries on playing. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first experience of football, so on. And this old woman, this guy's on the floor sort of holding his jaw. This old woman come up and leaned down and she goes, you deserve that. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit a, quite a <laughs> Quite a character. <laughs> so so I, thought, I just wondered if that was football, it was always going to be like <laughs> So are there any kind of, any particular memories or favourite memories that really stand out from those from those days for you? Oh, yeah, I mean, there was certainly... And, and, I mean, I do the tours now, so I get this from other people as well, and I, I fully understand it, you know, I empathise totally with them, but it is just the magic of coming here. It was a big occasion that you, you know, it takes pretty much the planning of it and the organising and getting ready and stuff like that. It takes a long, big chunk of the day. But coming here, uh, especially night matches, my first night match was magical with the lights on and, you know, the, the bright green and the players in the golden black. It was just fabulous. And of course, the noise of the crowd and everything else—it does build it up. I bought my grandson to his first match against Liverpool last week. Yeah, he's only six. He, he didn't make it all the way through. We had to go on, but but it was—I um, wanted just him to have that experience of being here with the and they make a big thing of it at the beginning of the game now with the lights and the the flares and things, and it really is theatre. It's brilliant. So um, what, 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 did, what did you think of it? Well, he, he was a bit confused. He, <laughs> he, he didn't do much with football for He thought at half-time we were 2-1 up because we'd had two free kicks. <laughs> <laughs> and he did ask me where the Queen sat. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, she can't get a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she hasn't got enough law to board, no, has she? No, no, she's got a little bit better than that. So was it nice kind of was it nice kind of seeing his? I bet his senses were all over the place. Yeah, he was. He was a bit. I mean, some of the shouting and some of the the cursing that goes on, he was, did put him off a bit because he, the family aren't like that. But um, he, he did, and he did have an occasional shout out, which I was pleased about. He was shouting support, but it's um, he was cold and he was tired, and, he was, and by half time I thought it best he's, he's on a little to take him out. I did that. Um, it would have been nice for him to see a goal, but we'll do it again when he's a bit older. Maybe I'll choose one match a bit better. That was a big game to bring yeah. him to, maybe too big. The start of his journey, though. Yeah, it so. is. It's one he'll remember. He did talk about it the next day. He's telling his little friends at school, apparently. So I'm pleased, he, you know, it has some sort of resilience with him. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I wanted. Um, does, do you still get... I mean, I still get... I come here a lot, obviously, and you come here far more than I do, but I still get that feeling of kind of wonder walking around this place. Do you still... Is it, how, how special is it? It, it, it's, it's it's really peculiar because uh, I spend a lot of time here um, even when I don't need to really I, I come up and, and, and on occasion when I've locked up the museum on a, a cold winter's night and I wonder I come back through the ground it's quite eerie to see the place so empty 
But, you know, if you just stop for a minute, you just think, well, all the, the fantastic times I've seen here, and the, and the acute depression as well, but but um, that's all part of it, isn't it? We, I'm, I'm pleased to be a Wolves fan and to work for Wolves because it meant a lot to me. And I do think it's a heritage business football. You do go with your dad and you, then you go with your son. And that's that's true in my case and it's I, I think it'll be true in so many other people's cases as well. But they tell they tell me that you must go to a football match with your father as a rite of passage. You gotta do that in order to learn how to moan properly. <laughs> Otherwise you won't get it right. <laughs> Some great content there from Pat, some great memories, some great nuggets. I love the bit about the Queen. <laughs> Where does she sit yeah. in you might, Imagine the Queen having a season ticket down the Golden Palace. Now, um, moving on to Graham Hughes. And I said he's a legend. I just think every club needs a Graham Hughes. And maybe they do have one. He's 86 years of age now. Uh, he's worked at the club for many years in various capacities. And, and even now that he's completely and utterly retired, Tim, he just can't stay away from the place. Oh, honestly, whenever you walk into reception at Molyneux, he's there, ready to share <laughs> some of his many, many stories to anyone who listen. Um, yeah, as you say, he's, he's got, his own, got his own stand now. The, the temporary stand is, is the Graham Hughes stand. He's he's a bit of a he's a Mister Wolves character, really. Um, so yeah, um, who better to speak about Molyneux and its history? So basically, I, I went down to his office. He's got his own little office in in, in a corner of Molyneux. Um, plastered on the walls are loads of pictures and artifacts and there's a bottle of whiskey there as well Jackie I don't know what time he'd started drinking it um so yeah basically I just asked him about Molyneux and, and let him talk I used to cycle every day from Cotswold because I did the dressing rooms for years you know yeah dressing rooms and uh, uh, when we was uh, the club was struggling you know we used to go down to get the petrol from Fiveways Garage Everybody pulled through like, you know, it was great, the atmosphere. That's what got the walls through in those days. Yeah. In those days, if the job wants to do it, do it, you know. Yeah. They used yeah. to help on the pitch. And then uh, Bill used to say, get his hand on the pitch, you know. So he used to go on the pitch and help him. But, but everybody mucked in, you know. Yeah, a bit different now. And George, George Best was a wall supporter. Yeah. The... Uh, he used to, they never had a telly in Belfast at his home, but they used, he used to go up the road, kick the ball against all my stuff, and he said, you want to come and watch the match, George? So he came to be a wall supporter by watching the walls on the television, and you, you know, in those friendlies. Yeah. And he came in one night to do a do upstairs, and I said, well, you saw me book, George, the best he book. So I go to me in my car, I said, and he's got to the walls of team I support as a boy. So when Fergie with the Man United team, when I was doing a dress, you know, I told him like that. Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, he scored against the walls and I couldn't understand why he didn't celebrate. He said, well, I didn't want to celebrate it against the team I used to used support. Used to support, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You know, well, that's, lo that's lovely, Graham. Thank you so much. I should let you get back to your cake here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're on lunch. So lovely to hear from Graham. Thank you so much for doing that. I remember Graham because he lives down the road from where I grew up in Codsall. Oh, he okay. still lives in the same house. And um, and I used to follow him in my little Fiat Uno and he would be uh, on his bike cycling to Molyneux. I used to get in there really <laughs> early um, in the olden days. You know, I used to like an hour in the stadium before kickoff just to soak it all up and eat my chicken bolty pie and what have you. But uh, it probably explains his fitness levels, doesn't it? But, but what a lovely, lovely man and long may graham rain now um what about your memories of molly you mentioned that you get a little bit a little bit tipsy and go down and talk to billy right what else yeah. do you remember as a kid um i've kind of well i've sat in i've sat in each stand over the years so started in the old john island in the lower tier the old family enclosure with the red seats remember the red seats oh yeah absolutely which apparently of of uh yeah are now wrexham's seats um, they were so faded, I, weren't they? After a while, they yeah, were more like no, pink. They, I don't understand why they were red to begin with. Um, so yeah, no, I sat up there and with the old John Island salute as well. You know, when it gets too sunny and you can't see the pitch anymore, so you have to put your put your hand up on the top of your eyes so you can watch the pitch. Um, and then just sat in the Billy Wright stands uh, again, the family enclosure. Remember that Honved game? That's one of the ones I remember quite distinctly yes. back in '93. 
think yeah. the, the, not the, the 1954 the flood... one. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have, <laughs> wouldn't assume that of your jacket. Would it? Um, <laughs> um, the old um, yeah, the floodlights. Did the floodlights go off that day? I remember. I remember the big screens not working very well. Yeah, they did. Um, there was the irony, wasn't it, that the floodlights failed? I'm sure. was I was it. sitting yeah, in the it. Billy Wright stand that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then um, sat in the North Bank a couple of times and the South Bank as well, and season ticket in the Steve Bullupper for about 20 years um, I remember the first time I ever saw Robert Plant was up there in the Steve Bullupper so yeah. I was walking, just got into Led Zeppelin and I was walking on the concourse you can't miss him <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, ma- that, that mane of hair that he's got um, and he used to sit really close to me actually in, in the Steve Bullupper, which I find unbelievable by the way, the guy can sit wherever he wants, he can sit next to Jeff Shee, no problem but he chooses to sit in this in the Steve Bullupper. Oh, I love Does that. He? Why he's, does he do he, that? Because he's a proper fan, isn't he? And um, he obviously doesn't mind being recognised because, like I said, you can't you can't help but help, can't help but miss him and people constantly stopping him. But um, he's just a proper fan, isn't he? Proper fan. Eh? He is a superstar. He is. I mean, we talked last week, didn't we, about our first game? And I was in the South Bank and my first season ticket, seventy five pounds, standing on the South Bank. And do you remember? No, I don't think. You've I think it was just before you started going, there was a game against Sunderland. And when the two stands were condemned, the Waterloo Road stand, now the Billy Wright, and the North Bank. And um, two Sunderland players got sent off. Gordon Armstrong and John Byrne were sent off in that far corner where there were no fans. And it was the weirdest, weirdest atmosphere in the world. They both got sent off, I think, at the same time. Nobody had a clue what was going on. And Walter on a terrible run at the time. And um, it took forever to break them down. Eventually, Paul Cook scored the winner. But it was just one of those weird, weird games where zero atmosphere in terms of knowing what on earth's gone on. And apparently it was weird for the players as well. But I used to have a season ticket in the South Bank. And then when I was at university, I then used to earn my ticket because I couldn't afford a season ticket. Brilliant. So I used to sell lottery tickets in the new North Bank. And uh, I remember when I first went in and I got my got my tickets to sell and I used to get everybody to write down their name and address on each individual stub. And I had no idea you were just supposed to sell the tickets, give them a stub and then <laughs> then it would just get called out on the winning number. So I probably only sold about two books in the whole day and I was supposed to have sold <laughs> hundreds of the blighters. Um, and then I used to so I used to sit in the Steve Ball for that, but I, I wasn't happy over there. It was all a bit too quiet. And then uh, and then I had season ticket at the North Bank. And then, of course, now tend to be in the in the Billy Wright for a variety of reasons. That's where the press box is. And um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, funny it's, how it's, it's changed over the years. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how I remember the, the original North Bank being built because that's when I started, um, when I started in the early 90s. And who would have thought back then that not only would the North Bank reopen in the early 90s, but it would reopen again. 20 years later with a new stand and yet the Steve Ball stand which is like an albatross around the club's head really it's been there since 1979 it almost made them bankrupt in the 80s and now they still can't get rid of it it's still there it's still standing um but I I, I quite you know there's this obsession with kind of symmetry these days with with stadiums but I quite like the fact that they might be doing a stand one by one and and it'll look a bit different a bit like Anfield really I, I, I think they're the um they're the club that Wolves will look to model kind of the Molyneux redevelopment on uh, I think they've done it really well they've done it piece by piece but it's retained its history and its soul really um, which might sound strange to some people but I, I know you know exactly what I mean and, it, and its mm. character and its atmosphere so hopefully that'll still be retained going forward the only one request I have having been to Tottenham's new ground and if you haven't mm. been oh my no, goodness not, do no, whatever no, you no, can to go any kind of sport just, just go it is phenomenal. And they have this stand at the end behind one of the goals, which is virtually vertical. And this is where I think they went wrong with the Emirates because the, the banks go back so gradually, like the old Wembley in a way. It's not it's not great. Whereas the new Tottenham ground, it goes so steeply that it's like a wall of sound. It's like they built it, you know, like Dortmund's yellow wall. So noisy and any redevelopment, I just love them to go up in a it does depend on your local area and what they're contractually allowed to do um but that makes such a difference to the atmosphere if you can have a really high steep bank with loads well, and loads of noise you imagine a, t- a ten thousand um seater south bank one tier <gasps> that would be phenomenal wouldn't it yes, with the please. rail seating they've got now as well everyone would be stood up oh it'd be phenomenal should we ask them to move the press box in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah just me and you right 
<laughs> just for us. We have our own little mini boo. That'd be phenomenal. <laughs> Cheers. We should get on some tweets about Molyneux. Neil Shenton says, so many memories, it's impossible to list them all. So I'm going to pick a couple of older ones. One of them, Sheffield Wednesday penalties, FA Cup 1995. Oh my goodness. Do you remember the um, Kevin Pressman penalty? Pressman. One hey, of the I did, best I, I didn't, penalties yeah, I've ever seen. I did an article <gasps> just, just on that penalty shootout a few months ago, which people can search for on the website. Yes. Brilliant. I think anybody who remembers that game remembers that that penalty. As for funny moments, a random one I always remember when they redeveloped the North Bank and moved the clock onto the roof of the South Bank and the South Bank subsequently chanting, North Bank, what's the time? North Bank, North Bank, what's the time? <laughs> like that. Um, Jeff Shee-V, what are the best, funniest chants or shouts you've heard over the years um, and there's one from RLB the leader saying funniest I heard was away at Selhurst Park during the fuel depot strike I don't remember that the mm. home fans chanted to the away fans who travelled 130 miles what a waste of petrol to which the Wolves <laughs> fans responded Sammy's got the petrol Sammy's got the petrol do you remember Saudi Arabian striker Sammy Al-Jaber <laughs> who was on loan to oh us? brilliant yeah these are probably the the cleanest chants we've ever had over the years aren't they and Adam Thompson being hit on the head by a Nokia 3310 in the South Bank after failing to stand to celebrate a goal. It was an end of season dead rubber, by the way. Still no excuse. Yes. I've got a bit of extra context on that because I saw that tweet and that's that's my, my good friend Adam Thompson who used to work at the Express and Star. Uh, he said, no, it wasn't deliberately thrown. Um, it was Wolves v Leicester 2003. Um, it was a nothing game at the end of the season. I remained in my seat applauding, mainly because I was too lazy to stand up. Anyway, a Nokia 3310 came hurtling through the air from the back of the South Bank and hit me on the head. Um, apparently it came out of some chap's pocket when he celebrated. Um, perhaps more impressive was that it shuffled around the steps for a good 20 minutes before the guy came to claim it. Um, when I picked it up, there wasn't a scratch on it. It shows you the durability of the old Nokias. Um, and he says his head was killing for two days. I oh, remember the days before iPhones when you couldn't check your emails and your tweets every two seconds. Well, those oh, are those were the days. I missed that. Yes, I wasn't on my phone the entire time then. Spencer Comer, most funny memory, although not funny at the time, is the own goal from Paul Stancliffe when we lost to Barnsley 5-0 at home in the early 90s. Crazy moment, he says. You know, this, this is a really sad thing to admit. We've probably got sadder things to admit than we have done already, but... I actually started crying. <laughs> Either the fourth or the fifth goal went in. And I remember telling myself, get a grip, man. You can't you can't cry just because you're losing five nil at home to Barnsley. How I don't know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and then I was also there when we lost four nil at home to Barnsley, which only a couple of years ago. Oh my goodness. Well I think I, I think Walter Zenger was crying after that one. Oh, shocker. Absolute shocker. Paul Reed said, I remember a game played in thick fog when Molyneux was closed on two sides. Wall scored in front of the empty North Bank. Nobody saw the goal and the South Bank only started cheering when players emerged out of the fog on the halfway line, arms aloft. <laughs> Yeah, now you'd find out on Twitter that you scored, wouldn't you? Yeah, or or some, some notification and you'd cheer that, wouldn't you? Um, you've had a couple of emails as well, Tim. One from Kim O'Meara. She says, Wolves became my team of... Team, sorry. Team my team after I moved from Scotland to England. My other half, now husband, was a Wolves fan. Our first proper argument was Steve Bull versus Ali McCoist. Who's better? He hadn't actually noticed we'd fallen out, but we had. With him, I've been to a lot of games over the years. My first game was against Port Vale, sitting in the Billy Wright stand. My overriding memory was of two old blokes bellowing, give it to Bully, every time anyone got the ball. Whatever player, whatever position, just get it to him. Sort of feel like that old bloke now myself, watching them replacing Bully with Adama Traore in the bellow. My favourite match, probably Watford away in 98, even more than the playoff final. I got my GCSE results on the same day. It was a sunny day and the atmosphere was going top, mixed with Robbie Keane making his mark, was buzzing. And finally, from Brendan, hi Tim and Jackie. Last Friday was the first time I've seen Liverpool at Molyneux since my very first match in 1980. I begged my older Wolf supporting brother to take me as I was a glory hunting nine-year-old Liverpool supporter at the time. I never forget the moment I walked up the steps and saw the green floodlit pitch. I'd only ever watched football on black and white telly before that. After patiently waiting for the mighty Reds to score, John Richards only goes and blooming scores late on. Wolves win the game and I switch my allegiances on the spot. I've been a Wolves supporter ever since and for most of the last 40 years I've cursed the king for that goal. But truth be told, I've never regretted it and I'm loving it now. We're back at the level we were on that night. 
Nice message from Brendan. Thank you for all the messages. I love it. Absolutely love it. It just kind of brings home that feeling of it's uh, it's a second home, isn't it? But it's a church as well to most people, and there's, everyone's got so much emotion and so many memories tied up in that place. Um, it's uh, it's a wonderful place to be. So should you move down the M54? No, don't. No, we're not going. <laughs> we're not leaving. No, I don't think we can after all that. No. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure once again oh, reminiscing. Going down Yeah, love lane. it. Absolutely, absolutely. Love, love. I could talk about Molyneux all day. Honestly, it's my, just my favourite place in the world to be. No, lovely to hear so many memories as well. Thanks to everyone for sending them in. Thank you. We'll be back same time next week with a different theme. Not too sure what it'll be as yet, but that will develop throughout the week. And when we get together next, we'll be talking about the Manchester United match, possibly a couple new signings. Mm, Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Thank you, Tim, for now. See you next week. And for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can also get a 40% discount if you haven't subscribed as yet. You can use the code WolvesPod. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you again for your feedback. See you next Tuesday morning. Bye for now.